0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or
1: complementary medicines weren't working for them.
0: Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that
1: we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
2: Think Health on 2 R one o 107.3.
1: Hi, welcome to the show, Ellen Lee Liebeter with you. On the show today, you're thinking of having a baby sometime in the future, so when is the right time to discuss pregnancy preparation?
2: The GP's not thinking, and while you're here, you're a healthy young woman, you might be thinking about getting pregnant in the next two years, let me talk to you about preconception care. That's, it just, just doesn't happen. And
1: you'll hear how
2: iPads are helping people
1: with intellectual disabilities cope with mental health problems. First, what do you use social media for? To plan parties, upload photos, find out the best way to tie in a breathing tube? For nurses and doctors working in intensive care units, there is a special online social platform to do just that. It's called ICU Connect. It goes to show the internet is more than just cat videos, but a powerful learning tool for clinicians as well. Kay Rolls is a moderator of ICU Connect, and she's been doing research on the platform for the last few years. Kay is a doctoral student at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're about to hear what it's like when you log on to this online space as Kay speaks with Nina Kopel.
0: You will see what looks like a discussion forum because we've just transferred to a discussion forum and um, you wouldn't be able to access it because you're not a member. You have to be in the club. You do have to be in the club, yes. So what's the advantage of having that sort of closed online space? The big difference between a closed virtual community like ICU Connect and say Twitter is that it's a much safer place for people to express themselves whereas Twitter, it's all in. Overall most people don't want to express or broadcast their opinions. I'm not one of them.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So what kind of things would you be talking about then?
0: Anything to do with intensive care practice or delivering intensive care to to patients. So most of the time it's about practices we do, like for instance, um, how to run a ventilator, which is the breathing machine for the intensive care patient. Or we could actually talk about how the service is delivered. So how many nursing staff are available, what they should look like, then there's governance issues like uh, ensuring that practices are safe and how to uh, respond to an emergency.
3: And what kind of things do people get
0: heated up about? What are the debates normally centered around? Yes, yeah, so the hot topics tend to be how to tie a breathing tube in. Oh. So about 50% of intensive care patients will have a breathing tube sometime during their stay. And uh, without an airway, you're going to die. So maintaining that airway in the correct position is vitally important. And I think it's because it's such a bread and butter issue that people tend to, it's a really hot topic that they talk about. So how you put it in or what it's supposed to do, what's the debate about? Usually the best way to keep it in the right place. So there are, a number of versions to do it. There's using white cotton tape or medical adhesive tape or then there's proprietary products about about how, how to hold it in and there's actually, the, the evidence base is quite limited but it's also a very nuanced practice and, and it, there's no right answer for this particular question which is why there's a lot of debate about it. So what was your role with
3: ICU Connect
0: then? So I'm the moderator of ICU so you still, Connect. So you still moderate? I still moderate ICU Connect. What does that involve making sure no one's saying anything too controversial or basically yes before we transferred to a discussion forum earlier this year we used to have to enroll people or take people on or off and it also about just uh, looking how the discussion is going and making sure people say profession say professional and over the 12 years I've only had to smack a handful of people and but it's never degenerated to the space of trolling or flaming where people are deliberately trying to make people angry or upset or vilify people and I think that's one of the great strengths of the community is they're very positive. It's almost like the conversations you might see at a professional conference so someone will present their research or pres- do their presentation and then people will ask questions and so it's a very professional exchange of ideas.
3: I mean you mentioned those conferences why is it important that those spaces exist online why can't it still happen in the real world ah, because conferences cost a lot of money
0: so medical conferences and, and healthcare conferences are seen as an integral part of maintaining the, your professional expertise unfortunately they cost money to go so luckily in Australia it will cost you somewhere between 8 and $1,200 to go to a conference but for anyone other than a doctor that's actually quite a significant cost so those conferences are still very very important because that's where the new science is presented and you get to listen to the keynotes. The value of ICU Connect is it's always there. And um, what I've found through my research is, is that's what the clinicians are wanting to do. They're wanting to communicate with their professional colleagues who they don't work with to say, how do you solve this particular problem? But the advantage of ICU Connect over and above the professional conference is that you can ask a very specific question. Whereas at conferences, you'll have a big questions asked, which may or may not specifically be yours. And the other thing is that, you know, you suddenly go to a conference in your room with five to a thousand people that you don't know and it can be extremely intimidating for most people so it's a much safer place on ICU Connect for people to be able to ask what the participants in my focus group called a naive question so they feel safe they, they can ask that dumb question that they which they wouldn't necessarily feel safe to ask in, a, in an open environment. So you've mentioned this research that you've been doing and your focus group that you held. Have you identified
3: any things that need work or that need to be changed in your your mind?
0: The negative things that came up was that some of the discussions weren't as evidence based as people would like them to do. There were perceptions that there wasn't enough variety in contributions, which actually contradicts my findings but that, these were people's perceptions. So we need to develop some strategies to engender some more evidence-based discussions. And um, I've got a new moderator, we are co-moderate now. So we're thinking about how we can engender those or stimulate those conversations.
3: Yes, guess I am interested to know where you think this will go in the future, like how important this type of social space will be as we do move in towards a more
0: tech-savvy and socially connected world. It's an interesting notion. I think in the future there might be a lot more use of closed communities on Facebook and the later literature is sort of pointing in that direction to definitely for professional purposes because most people are very passive about social media and so if it doesn't work straight away for them, they're just sort of, you know, I'm not going to go there anymore. So you've got to teach them about the value of it and what what it brings for them.
3: Yeah, that was something that came up in your research, wasn't it? Was the amount of people who lurk? I think you call it lurking.
0: Yes. There's a sort of a 991 nine, rule nowadays. 90% of people will lurk or not post. Nine people will post occasionally and one person will post very, very frequently. And that's certainly borne out in, in my research. And, and when you think about it, if you're in a in a classroom or at a professional conference, you will see that reflected anyway in the just the normal dynamics of of where where people are. So, most people are not inherently gregarious, and uh, some people, when they're really passionate about something or they've got a driving passion, will put up the hand, and then you'll have the person who has to say something else time. <laughs>
3: It's interesting because you think that having that online forum would give people who aren't normally confident to talk in a classroom situation or at that conference, it might give them more confidence to post that that question or to post that idea.
0: Yeah, it, it does. The psychological research is quite interesting. It depends on the forum and the gregarious qualities that a person has inherently don't necessarily transfer directly to how much they post online and the converse with someone who's very introverted it and it depends on the forum they're in but still for many people even the smallest challenge will will bring them in and they're not used to being able to deal with that challenge and that's one of the inherent differences between doctors and nurses is that doctors are used to going very tough toe to toe I don't agree with I want to do this I don't agree with you this is why I don't agree with you and then they have a have a heated discussion and then they're friends whereas nurses and that's probably it's probably a step on from or a hold over from being predominantly female and being a uh, Secondary member of the team and not used to that challenging behaviour. So, if someone calls you out, even in the nicest way, some people just feel that that's a personal attack.
1: Kay Rolls, doctoral student in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. How do you make sure your body is in the best physical shape for pregnancy? It's a question not many Australian women are asking, with half of all pregnancies unplanned, and many women not involving GPs and midwives until they are already pregnant. This has some worrying consequences, especially if you are overweight, not getting your leafy green veggies, or have a chronic health condition, all of which can contribute to making your pregnancy complicated. Researchers are now asking who is responsible for starting conversations with women about preconception care, and when is the best time to do it. Dr Amy Steele is a postdoctoral research fellow from the Australian Research Centre in Complementary and Integrative Medicine at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's also Associate Director of Research at Endeavour College of Natural Health. Dr Steele has been looking at what women want when it comes to preconception
2: care. Preconception care is a range of health interventions that women and their families and their partners can undertake prior to getting pregnant to improve the health of the mum during pregnancy, the growth of the baby and the health of the baby after birth.
1: So basically maximising health for mum and bub. Yeah. What sort of things encompass preconception care?
2: Well, the mainstream approaches often include anything from screening for existing viral infections and immune things like making sure people have had their rubella vaccinations beforehand. And and they do some blood tests to confirm that that's all active and and what have you. Reducing alcohol and, and smoking prior to pregnancy, getting women to start thinking about how they're going to manage that during pregnancy if they do drink and smoke so that they're not exposing the baby to that risk during, you know, the pregnancy itself. Um, And also some other things that have been given a lot of support from the World Health Organization, like making sure folic acid status is really quite at a good level. So they've got lots of green leafy vegetables or they're taking folate tablets or things.
1: Where do women get this information from to help maximise their healthiness during pregnancy?
2: Well, I guess that's the question. And there's not really a good answer. So I've just um, undertaken a review that's looked at that information and we've basically found that everyone identifies, all the health professionals identified, it's important. The GPs are probably best placed uh, to to talk to women about these things, but they don't feel that they have enough training to really um, have good quality conversations with women about... The intricacies of it or the time to, to do anything more than just ask for a few tests and recommend that they stop smoking. Um, there's a bigger conversation that needs to happen there's good evidence for a whole range of things being important in the preconception period that, that GPs don't necessarily have as I said the knowledge or the time to to have conversations with women about so that, I, I don't think there's a really good answer for that That 15 minute consult isn't enough to give women no, all the information they need it, it's it, the, that time, that minute consult is not enough. And the other side is that a lot of GP consultations are patient driven. So you, you sit down in front of the GP and the GP says, what can I help you with today? The GP is not thinking, and while you're here, you're a healthy young woman, you might be thinking about getting pregnant in the next two years. Let me talk to you about preconception care. It's, it just, just doesn't happen. And so, and even for patients with chronic health problems that they've been managing all of their life, like type one diabetes... Where they have regular appointments with the with the doctor, and they're coming into an age where they've they've got um, you know they they're more likely to be looking to get pregnant. The doctors are still not having those conversations um, with the the women very frequently. And the question is how do you best prepare women when the doctors aren't leading the conversation and the women don't know to ask. So who's left apart from the internet? It's That's pretty much it. And I think that the problem is women don't know that, that this can even happen. We're not even educating women that preconception care has value, that other than taking folic acid, which seems to be getting out there a little bit, but there's a bunch of other things that, that people can be doing. And even reducing alcohol and, and cigarette, people think about it as something you would do during the pregnancy – but that there's actually good evidence that not having alcohol or cigarettes 3 months before getting pregnant is also important for the health of the placenta which affects the blood flow to the baby and its nutrients and its growth and 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 everything that that is associated with that so the, that information's just not getting out there and we actually need some responsibility within the health service delivery to make sure that that someone takes that responsibility.
1: You mentioned there
2: that it's good for the
1: placenta. Are there any other benefits that come from good preconception care?
2: There's a number of health complaints that women can develop during pregnancy. Which are less likely to occur if they have good preconception care. So there are things like gestational diabetes and um, pre preeclampsia, um even just weight gain, excessive weight gain and obesity. Um, there's a, n- a number of different things for the mum, but also for the overall development of the, of the baby. they've the after birth, they've found that lots of factors, including later in life, there's growing evidence that even as, as babies mature, that if they've had these good health, good health and start, then they're much more able to be healthy and, and successful young people as they grow up. You,
1: so your recent paper has looked at the attitudes of women and health professionals to preconception care. Yes. What are the women's attitudes to preconception care?
2: Mostly the women who, who access preconception care don't feel like they're getting the sort of care that they need. They don't necessarily feel as though the information that they need is available. They don't know where to go to get the information. And the, the, the thing is the main probably the most important finding out of my review is that not enough we don't know enough about that, because no one's bothered to ask them. Most of the research that's been done that looked at attitudes and perceptions towards preconception care has asked the health professionals what they think should be happening. But but very, there's only been four papers ever published that's actually looked at what women think should be happening and what they're looking for, where they would go, who they would feel comfortable talking to um, and the sort of information that, that they need and support that they need to to make the changes in their life. And what are women saying they would like to see? The, the biggest thing they're looking for is, is holistic care and and time. And, and support in, in making lifestyle changes and, and good, clear information about what they need to do. Does anybody offer that care? No, not a, not a specific service and certainly not to generally healthy women. There are little pockets that are set up for specific um, health complaints so uh, going back to my example before type 1 diabetes you know there there is there'll be a specialist services that will be set up for patients with type 1 but diabetes if they're thinking about getting pregnant pregnant to to go and have specialized preconception care support and thyroid disorders and, and those sorts of things but even understanding that pretty much all the research for chronic health is focused on type 1 diabetes and yet there's a, a list of six eight ten conditions that are known conditions that need preconception care support and we haven't even bothered to research what women are looking for or what they want out of those conditions. There's not a single study looking at, at, as I said, thyroid disorders and what women with thyroid disorders want.
1: The health professionals seems to be ample evidence for them. What
2: what do they think preconception care needs? They think it needs to happen. They agree that preconception care is important. Health professionals are very aware of that, but they aren't really clear who should be providing that information. Um, Midwives are saying, actually, it's not our job. It's not in our place because by the time we see women, they're already pregnant. Um, Community health nurses are happy enough to do it. But again, mostly women are accessing them postnatally. So they can provide what's often called as internatal care, which is, I see you've had another baby. I'm not sure if you're thinking about having another one. If you are, there are some things you could probably be doing in preparation. So it's primarily coming back to the general practitioners again, and they identify that it's important, but they don't know that there's that there's a place for it. And I think that, that this is in, in, in the service that they provide. And th- this is the gap that we've identified and that we're, we're looking at what other practitioners and know is it pharmacists who, who are providing much more community level care and people just come in and ask questions who might be able to have those conversations? Is it complementary medicine practitioners where we know that women are more likely to use them? and that without women who are pregnant are, are using them, and women are actually going to them for a lot of fertility-related complaints as well. So th- there may be that they're a, a health resource that we can be tapping into to help support good preconception care education and support.
1: Dr Amy Steele, postdoctoral research fellow from UTS, speaking about preconception care for Australian women.
2: listening to Think Health on 2CR
1: 107.3 Having an intellectual disability might mean you see the world a little bit differently to other people. Social situations can be harder to navigate and day-to-day tasks can be difficult. On top of these challenges, up to 50% of people with an intellectual disability will have a mental health issue. So what can we do to make sure people with intellectual disabilities are getting the help they need? To find out, Nina Koppel spoke with Dr Lynette Roberts, a clinical psychologist and researcher in mental health at the University of Technology, Sydney. She started off by explaining exactly what an intellectual disability is.
4: An intellectual disability means you have deficits in intellectual functioning, in adaptive functioning. So these are kind of life skills like making friends or paying bills. And these kind of difficulties start in early development, so in the first few years of life. So that's a lifelong condition if you've got an intellectual disability. And about 3% of the population will have an intellectual disability. What my area of research is looking at is within this population, what are the rates of mental health illness and what are the types of treatments that are are available because we know that individuals with intellectual disabilities are more vulnerable to developing a mental health difficulty like depression or anxiety so they're actually more vulnerable than you and I but tragically and unfortunately, there's less access to treatments, less access to specialist services. So to kind of put it in perspective, there are some studies that show up to 50% of people with an intellectual disability will also have a mental health illness. And there are some studies that are showing only about 10% of people will access treatment.
3: And do we know if that's the stress of having the the intellectual disability or if it's just Something that is a coincidence? Do we know what the link yeah. is?
4: Yeah, there's a few different ideas, and there's a few different kind of research studies kind of speaking to that. There could be a genetic component that makes you a bit more vulnerable. But I love what you're saying—that idea about you know, if you're if it's already quite stressful, trying to understand and navigate the world around you, understanding social interactions, um, if you know certain kind of life experiences can be confusing, that can lead to feeling more anxious and more depressed. And there's also individuals with intellectual disability can be more vulnerable to experiencing really negative life circumstances that would lead to mental health issues like homelessness or abuse or neglect, so things like that. So there's a number of different kind of things that could contribute.
3: And how prepared are medical teams and doctors to respond to those, those mental health issues?
4: I think it varies. Some people have access to you know fantastic specialist training. Um, however, I think it's probably not as widespread as we would like to see. Um, and so it can be confusing. It can be stressful for everyone involved. If you know you're, if you have an intellectual disability and you're struggling to express yourself and make yourself understood, and other people around you are not really sure what's going on, it can be very confusing, very overwhelming. And we find that sometimes people can bounce between services. So you know that's not a health issue. That's a disability issue. No, that's not a disability issue. That's a health issue. So I think a lot of those issues can come up.
3: So talking, talking yeah. about that bouncing between a disability and yeah. a mental health issue, are there any tools we have to connect the two? Yes. Yeah,
4: so I think what's really important is increasing awareness. So increasing awareness for mental health practitioners, increasing awareness for families, for carers, that if they are working with an individual with an intellectual disability, that they can be more vulnerable to mental health difficulties. And I think in addition to awareness, what we really need to be doing is working more on in improving treatments, so putting more funding into researching that area and then disseminating the results of that research so people are more aware of what effective treatments look like, how you implement them, you know, how you can go about that. So that's some of the stuff that my PhD students are looking at at the moment. So um, we've just run a survey looking at mental health practitioners and counsellors across Australia and just trying to get a sense of how confident do they feel working with people with intellectual disabilities. And she found some interesting um, results. So in general, why While a lot of kind of psychologists and counsellors in Australia feel confident to to listen, to be empathic, to kind of have those general counselling skills, they don't feel very confident assessing or treating individuals with intellectual disabilities. And part of that can be not as much, I guess, specialist training and also maybe lack of information about what treatments do work and also lack of research about what treatments do work.
3: So you and the teams that you're working with are yep. looking at some anxiety treatment programs, if I'm correct. Yep. So what yep. what are some of those programs?
4: Yeah. So we've done a lot of work looking at so standard psychological therapies. So if you and I you know, would have an anxiety disorder and go to see a psychologist, we would generally get something called CBT. Or cognitive behaviour therapy and it's a really effective evidence-based research that looks at how you think about things, how you act in situations and how if you can do kind of important changes in how you think and act you can help manage and reduce your anxiety. So it's about thoughts, feelings and behaviours. So we know that's really effective for um, the typically developing population. We don't really know too much about how we can adapt that for people who have an intellectual disability. So that's exactly what my team has been looking at. We've done some work adapting that type of treatment for adults with intellectual disabilities who are having anxiety. And we found that it was quite effective. So we're publishing that at the moment and giving our recommendations to other practitioners on how they could do a similar thing. And my PhD student at the moment is uh, focusing her kind of three-year PhD on exactly that question, but with children and adolescents. So it's not necessarily about reinventing the wheel. We know a lot about effective treatments, but it's about how can we make it work best for children and adults who have an intellectual disability.
3: Do you have any example of how a question might change or a conversation with with someone in that psychological space might change from a The average person to someone with an intellectual disability? Yeah,
4: yeah, I've got to get my therapist voice on. (laughs) So if I was working with an adult who didn't have an intellectual disability, in a way we'd be talking about quite a lot of abstract concepts right so we'd be talking about when you're in that situation like when you're talking to somebody new what thoughts are going through your head what are the types of anxious thoughts you're having how realistic are these thoughts are you catastrophizing right now what's the best case scenario what's the worst case scenario so it's a lot of I guess kind of discussion and dialogue around um, how realistic those thoughts, how helpful those thoughts are, and that's very helpful, but it's also quite abstract. So what we do with adults with intellectual disabilities is we take the kind of core concepts and reduce it to kind of quite straightforward, direct questions, and we use the metaphor of red versus green traffic light thoughts. So what I mean by that is instead of kind of talking about is this a helpful thought, a realistic thought... I might say that, you know, a red traffic light thought is a thought that makes us feel anxious. It makes us feel stressed, it makes us stop. A green traffic light thought is a thought that's more helpful, it's more calming, it helps us kind of go ahead with our lives. So when you're in that situation, is this a red traffic light thought? Is this a green traffic light thought? So changing how we introduce things in a way that kind of makes more sense. But it's at the core of it, it's the same general idea that how you think about things is important. If you change that, you can change how you feel. And then how yeah. does that change for kids? And With kids, we're a lot more, I guess, interactive. We kind of bring in cartoon characters, superheroes. It's and We do a lot of role play. You know, we're acting a lot of things out. We make it really interactive. We're looking at putting it on an online space, so being able to kind of increase accessibility across Australia and hopefully internationally. So... I think what's important is that it's the same core idea. It's the core idea that we know that works in anxiety, but it's making it more age-appropriate and more developmentally appropriate.
3: I think that online space is still a work in progress,
4: but do you have any ideas what it would look like? Yeah, so we were very lucky to get some grant funding from the James N. Kirby Foundation to support us in that area. What we're looking at is taking some of the key ideas from the treatment program that we've developed, so maybe say three or four key strategies, and really focusing on presenting it in a really kind of accessible, fun, interactive way so that children can practice it online, practice it with their teachers, practice it with their parents and kind of really consolidate the work they would be doing face to face in treatment being, and being able to practice it outside. So that's one component of it and also the accessibility component so not everybody's going to be able to come in for say some of our trials and um, you know, go through the treatment but we would still want them to access some of the findings that are coming out of it.
1: Dr. Lynette Roberts, clinical psychologist and researcher in mental health at the University of Technology, Sydney. If you would like to find out more about that story or anything else you heard today, head to 2scr.com forward slash think health. If you've enjoyed today's show, make sure you subscribe so you won't miss a moment. And if you have any questions, go and see a GP. Think Health is produced with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. I'm Ellen Lee Thanks for your company.